You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, a local body of believers in Quarryville, PA. To learn more about Oak Hill, visit oakhillfellowship.com. Now grab a Bible and a notebook and prepare to be spiritually enriched by God's Word. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Uh, We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I would invite you to open Uh, to to pull one out of the seat back in front of you, or maybe it's under the seat if you're in one of the red chairs. Uh, We want you to be seeing God's Word for yourself because the the power of God is in His Word. He speaks with power, and and He has revealed Himself through His Word. And so we want to be looking right at the pages of Scripture and and, and be understanding that the Lord is speaking to us. And so uh, we even put the page number, if you need it, at the top of your bulletin notes. If you need help help finding that, uh, the page number is there. Uh, and, and that is uh, corresponding to the, the thin Bibles that are in the seatbacks. So you're opening your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 11. We're going to be in verse 12 this morning. And as you're turning there, I wanted to, to show you uh, actually one of my favorite commercials of all time uh, that I think describes what some people wrongly think is happening in our text today. So turn your attention to the screen. Marsha, what happened? Peter hit me in the nose with a football. I can't go to the dance like this. Well, I'm sure it was an accident, sweetheart. An eye for an eye. That's what Dad always says. Mm. Never said that, huh? Ah! Time to teach Peter a lesson. Marsha, eat a Snickers. Why? You get a little hostile when you're hungry. Better? Better. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Jan, this isn't about you. It never is. <laughs> <laughs> Really, all of the Snickers commercials are, are some of my favorite of all time. First, because I love Snickers. Uh, and then second, because I can, I can get so easily angry when I'm hungry. Can anybody relate to that? Sometimes we call it hangry, right? And uh, there, there are quite a few times when, in my life when I've been really, really hungry. And so I go to the cupboard or I go to the refrigerator. And, and I, I, I hate to admit it, when there's nothing there that I want to eat, I get a little grouchy. I get a little irritable in that moment. And that highlights an even greater, broader, proverbial truth that, the, that our anger reveals the desires of our heart. Have you found that to be true? Our anger, what we get angry about, reveals the desires of our heart. What's on my heart when I'm hangry is the immediate demand for food and my disdain for being even a little bit uncomfortable. Other times, I might get angry when I feel like I'm I'm being taken advantage of. Or maybe when I feel like there's some sense of injustice done toward me or done toward someone else. And today, as we continue studying the book of Mark, we're going to see what makes Jesus angry. Now, if we don't read our Bibles carefully, it will look to us at first glance like he's just hangry, that he's overreacting because he he doesn't get something immediately when he wants something to eat, and that he's upset that some bad dudes entered the temple at the same time that he happened to be there. And if we're not careful, we'll we'll think that that Jesus is somehow breaking character from his typical uh, gentle and lowly heart. We'll be tempted to say to Jesus, uh, you're not you when you're hungry. Eat a Snickers. But, but as we look closer, we'll see that, that, that Jesus is expressing his heart in this scene of anger. He's revealing what he really cares about. We'll see that his anger is not so much about the, the physical fruit and the physical hunger that he experiences in this section, even though he did experience that. But rather, he was righteously indignant about the faithlessness that he is observing in his people. He's hungry, if you will, for the spiritual fruit of his people that is produced through faith. And he is angry at the false fruit that people were willing to be satisfied with in its place. So here's our big idea for today. Christ is hungry for the faithful fruit that he mightily produces when the nations come to God through him. Christ is hungry for the faithful fruit that he mightily produces when the nations come to God through 
him. Your Bibles are open to Mark chapter 11, where we're studying the third and final act in the book of Mark that covers the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, this is the section where Mark is intent on finally and, and fu fully proving that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And our purpose in studying this whole gospel has been the same as Mark's purpose for writing it. That's always a good uh, thing when your study is, is seeking the author's purpose, right? And it's been to realize that now, now is the time to tell others the good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now is the time to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And for those of us who are, are followers of Jesus, we're, we're growing to, to more and more know and love Jesus as the promised, anointed, Savior, King ourselves. And, and by the way, if you don't know and love Jesus, I, I'm praying that you would come to know and love Jesus this morning. He, he is worthy of your affections and all of your devotion. And then out of the overflow of our love and our devotion to Him, we're becoming convinced that we must tell everybody else around us of that same good news. It's good news. It's the best news ever. And the truth of God's salvation is good news that was never meant to be kept to ourselves. In fact, that's exactly what we're going to see in our text today. Just to remind you of the context of this story, uh, what we studied last week, Jesus just walked into the Jerusalem, uh, the city that is the heart uh, of the nation of Israel, because his, his temple is there. Very really in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies in the temple was the place where the manifest presence of God resided. So it, it is the, the heartbeat of the religious life of the nation. And as he entered the city, the following crowds hailed him as king. They hailed him as the son of David, the Messiah of the Jewish people, of, of the nation of Israel. But as he enters the temple, he, he proves that Israel has failed to live up to their calling as God's people. They've failed to welcome the nations into the worship of God with them. And tragically, they've done even worse. They've, they've put obstacles in the way of the nation's worship of God through false worship practices. And that makes Jesus angry. Hangry even for spiritual fruit. So read with me in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. On the following day, that's the, the day after the triumphal entry, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive and you will, if you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. 
this section that we just read is another classic example of the literary technique that we've talked about a lot in our study of the book so far, uh, the Markin Sandwich. And this is, this is it if you, uh, if, if you haven't been with us. Uh, it, the, the big grammar word uh, is interpolation. Uh, that's a fun word to say sometimes, interpolation. Uh, but it, it, it works like this. Uh, the story about the fig tree uh, acts like the, the bread of the sandwich. Uh, the first part is, is the bottom piece, and then the second part is the, the top piece. And then the story of the cleansing of the temple is, is in the middle there, uh, like the meat and all the fixings, it, it brings flavor to the whole sandwich. It, it defines through its context what it means. This is a unique tool that we see in Mark more than any other writer, especially here when Matthew and Luke tell this very same story, they, they don't quite split it up the same way that Mark does. They, they shrink it down to be more concise, and they, they tell it in just two different, as two different stories. But Mark has a, a point to make. Now, now, if you've been listening to me preach for a while on Mark, uh, you might wonder why I keep going into this Mark and Sandwich thing. Like, why, why do you have to bring it up every time it comes up? Like, is this just Pastor Ben trying to be smart or cute or something? Like, do I just go over to this stuff because I like to geek out over it and like I just want to give the Bible nerds something else to, to chew on or something? That's not it at all. Uh, I, want, I want to show you why, especially in this text, reading each part of Scripture in the context of the greater section is so important. We have to read the Bible the way the author intended it. And here, Mark is clearly using a literary technique to make a point that we will miss if we pull it apart. You miss the whole flavor of the passage when you try to preach these parts separately, particularly, and I've listened to a number of preachers do this this week, you miss the theme of prayer. Or the words that I've used to define prayer, uh, coming to God. When I say coming to God in this sermon, I want you to think prayer. Because that's what prayer is. Prayer or coming to God is like, like a toothpick that holds the sandwich together. And so when we eat the whole sandwich at once, I believe that we will clearly see that Christ is hungry for the faithful fruit that he mightily produces when the nations come to God through him. Now, I want us to build this sandwich together one piece at a time to see how it all fits together. The, and the first layer of bread is, is this. Uh, Christ is hungry for faithful fruit from his people. We need to become convinced of that. Christ is hungry for faithful fruit from his people. And so the first scene by itself just seems like it's missing a whole lot of things, right? And it's supposed to because it goes with the rest of it. It's, a, it's just a plain piece of white Wonder Bread. And we find Jesus walking into Jerusalem with the, the 12 disciples after uh, spending the night in Bethany. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that the day before, uh, Jesus rode into the city on a colt, the foal of the don uh, donkey, as the king. But then the last thing that we saw Jesus doing was standing in the temple courts virtually alone, observing all of the happenings of the temple, just kind of taking it all in, and then he just went back out to Bethany to spend the night. And now this is the re-entry into Jerusalem, and this comes right between the observation of the religious failure of the nation and his confrontation of that failure. That's important to understanding what's going on here. Mark says that on this little two-mile hike uh, that's down the Mountain of Olives and, and back up the other side of the valley, up into Jerusalem, uh, that Jesus gets hungry and wants something to eat. Jesus is fully God and fully man, so that should be no surprise to us. Jesus got physically hungry. Now, in his hunger, uh, Jesus sees a tree off in the distance, and he, he sees that it's in full leaf. It's a fig tree. And so he, he leads his disciples to go check that out and, and to potentially get a snack together. But here's where some people get confused. Uh, Mark tells us that it was not the season for figs. 
In other words, most figs, fig trees were not yet producing figs. And there are all sorts of, of potential explanations for that. My favorite comes from a fig expert. Apparently those exist. Uh, R.C. Sproul once knew him, and so he cited him. He said that certain varieties of figs produce outside of the typical fig season. So finding a, a fig tree that was in leaf was, was great because you know, maybe I'm not going to find any other fig tree that has figs on it. And so even though it's not the season for figs, there's a chance that this is going to have fruit. And the way that you know a fig tree would be producing fruit is if it had leaves. The leaves on a fig tree apparently come after the fruit. So the logic would go, if there's leaves, there should be fruit. But not so with this tree. We have leaves, but no fruit. The tree is functionally barren. We have the appearance of life, but not the substance. Now, we don't know if Jesus walked into this scenario knowing that the tree had no figs so that he could then prove a point, or if he just noticed the teaching opportunity in front of him in the moment. But Jesus sees the tree and fully aware of what he's about to do in the temple, he curses it. And you have to understand that the fig tree is an important symbol for Israel all throughout the Old Testament. Over and over again, it's used as an indicating meter of Israel's favor with the Lord. So as the nation is faithful to the Lord and His covenant, His blessing on them is represented by the prophets with an abundance of figs and fig trees. Uh, the, the, the expression that's used a couple times is, everyone sits under their own vine and under their own fig tree. You heard George Washington say that in Hamilton. That's where that comes from. And if the nation is unfaithful to the Lord, his curse on them is also represented as a lack of fig trees or the, the barrenness of the fig trees. And so here, Jesus is not just hangry that a fig tree is not giving him his breakfast for the day. Instead, he's taking the opportunity, like the prophets of old used to do, to enact a prophetic drama, prophetic symbolism. He's demonstrating what's going to happen for the nation of Israel. The whole system of temple worship that was central to Judaism and Israelite culture was never going to produce spiritual fruit again. In fact, in 40 or so years, it was going to be torn down. The temple will be torn down. Jesus was shutting down temple worship. Now that doesn't mean that, that Israel as a people would never produce fruit again. God still has a plan for them in his story. But the system of temple worship and the old covenant under which it, op it operated would be brought to an end. And honestly, they had turned that system into a, a superficial mockery of worship anyway. And they would no longer be permitted to approach the Lord in that way. So here's the bottom line. The Lord wanted fruit. And all the people had produced was the leaves that made it look like they had something going on with God. It only produced leaves, no fruit. So I was talking to Richard Drumheller this past week, and uh, he has a fig tree in his backyard that produces figs in, in abundance, right? And, and, and he said, joking, of course, I know why Jesus didn't curse the fig, or why Jesus cursed the fig tree, uh, because figs are delicious. And uh, it, 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 not finding any would be seriously disappointing, right? Um, in fact, Richard and G brought figs. Uh, and I have them over in our coffee time area, and uh, if you, you can taste some, and if there's any kids in the room, let them get them first, right? But um, as you, if you get to try them, use those figs to remember this fact. Fruit is good. Fruit is good. I know that seems really simple, but, but I want you to understand, spiritual fruit is good. The fruit of faith is good, and the Lord is hungry for the spiritual fruit of his people. Now, by that, I do not mean that the Lord needs us to produce spiritual fruit. I don't mean that he lacks something without us. 
Please don't misunderstand me to hear me saying that this morning. God is the source and sustainer of all things, including the spiritual fruit of his people. However, God is affectionately desirous to produce and seek fruit in his people. He delights in spiritual fruit. You you might remember John 15, which is a a slightly different metaphor of a grapevine that produces fruit. Uh, The grapevine was also a metaphor that, that represented Israel frequently in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Notice in these verses how clear Jesus is. The the Father, first of all, is seeking fruit in His people who are the branches. He cares so much that His people produce fruit that He has given His own Son to be the vine, the source of life from which the branch can produce fruit. He removes everyone who is in the midst of His people who are not fully connected to the source of life of Jesus Christ by faith. Everyone who is looking like a branch is, that's part of the vine, but is not. And he is willing to prune the branches that do not produce fruit. He is eager to get everything out of the way that is not producing fruit in our lives. I'm sorry, he's willing to prune the branches that do produce fruit. I said that wrong. He's willing to get everything out of the way that's not producing fruit in our lives so that we would produce more fruit. And the Father does not settle for a little fruit. He wants that more fruit, even much fruit, that He talks about later in John 15. The Father is seeking the fruit that comes from abiding in Christ. He's seeking the fruit that comes from coming to Him. Call that prayer. Prayer is right there in the context of John 15. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And the Lord is seeking the fruit of a transformed heart that turns from sin and self and trusts and worships and obeys God alone, ultimately as He is revealed in Jesus Christ. So I want you to hear this clearly. I want you to hear this clearly this morning, that when we say the Lord is seeking fruit from His people, that He is hungry for fruit, The Lord does not seek fruit to take something from you. Instead, He wants to give something to you. The Lord does not seek fruit so that He can get something from you. He wants to give something to you. Fruit is what the tree and the vine are made for. Fig trees are made to produce figs. Grapevines are made to produce grapes. And Jesus is willing to curse the barren fig tree. He is willing to overthrow the tables in the temple that were associated with false worship so that His people could bear much fruit through the new vine of His body and blood. The fig tree had no fruit It would never produce fruit again. And the symbolism there is clearly defined as we examine this second layer of our sandwich, the the meat and the fixings. Christ is angry at the false fruit people try to produce on their own. Christ is angry at the false fruit people try to produce on their own. Verse 14. And they came to Jerusalem... And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Do you see it? Jesus is angry. He is angry here. And we have to understand that emotions like anger are not wrong in and of themselves. Anger is an emotion that clearly identifies the unmet desires of our heart and says, that's not right. 
That's not right. And the Lord is just in His anger when He sees sin and says, that's not right. That is harming my people. That is of the liar, the accuser, the devil. And we have to be careful to identify exactly what makes Jesus angry in this scenario. It's not that people are worshiping in the temple or offering sacrifices according to God's command. Uh, selling sacrificial animals was, was necessary and required by law for travelers who could not bring an animal from home. The, the changing of money was required to, to pay the temple tax in the temple currency as required in the law of Moses. And it would be unjust if Jesus was angry that people were selling sacrifices or changing money because they would just be doing what God asked. Rather, Jesus is angry at the fact that they had moved the marketplace into the temple courts when it used to be out on the Mount of Olives and that they had sold these items at exorbitant rates under false pretense in order to turn a profit. That's why he calls them a den of robbers. They had turned the worship of God into the worship of false gods of money and pride. And I'm sure they would have defended their cause by saying, look, look, we're, we're just trying to make sure that, that people are able to worship God. We're making sure that they have the adequate sacrifices to worship God in all of the splendor of holiness that He deserves. If that costs more to the pilgrim, then so be it. Nothing ain't free in life. Nothing is free in life. We can all tend to, to justify our behavior with religious-sounding platitudes. But Jesus knew their hearts by the false fruit they produced. They cared about their bottom line. They cared about their own pride and their, their ability to say, oh, I, I see you have a lamb there from, from your own flock. Oh, well, sorry, it's just not good enough. You're going to have to buy one of ours. Not only that, but this phony expression of religious piety uh, targeted two vulnerable groups of people as it lined the pockets of the religious elite. Uh, first, it targeted the foreigner or Gentiles. See, the marketplace was set up in the outer court of the temple, otherwise known as the court of the Gentiles. It was a place that God had provided in the temple for the nations, the foreigners, to come and work to come to Israel and worship Yahweh as the one true God. And when Solomon dedicated the first temple structure, he, he understood this and he prayed, uh, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, he's talking to God, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and he prays towards his house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. You see, the original intent of the temple was that the Gentiles, the nations, would have a place to gather in and call upon the Lord. There, there was a missionary purpose in the temple. But the Jews were crowding out that space for the sake of their own financial gain. They failed to recognize their missionary purpose in their worship. Not only that, but, but Jesus specifically overturned the tables of money changers. And we know from history that the money changers would exchange currency at an exorbitantly high rate for the pilgrim worshiper. Which means that if you were a Gentile who had foreign coin, you were especially targeted. It also means, secondly, that their scheme targeted the poor. Not only would the poor be hit hardest by the exchange rates in the temple, but Mark also points out that Jesus targeted those who sold pigeons when he was throwing over tables and chairs. Did you think that was kind of a weird little detail to conclude? The pigeons were the poor man's sacrifice. It's 
what you offered when you couldn't afford a goat or a lamb. And apparently they were price gouging pigeons instead of honoring God's heart who allowed for a less expensive sacrifice for the poor in the first place. You see, the system of temple worship was operational. Sacrifices were being made. Vows were being performed. They had the appearance of faithful activity, but the hearts of the people who ran the system were not producing spiritual fruit. They were a fig tree with no figs, only leaves. Now, I want you to feel the emotion that Jesus is feeling here with me for a moment. What must it have been like watching these blood sacrifices which pointed forward to the sacrifice that he was about to make of his own body and blood just a week later? What must it have been like watching those sacrifices being cheapened into a money-making scheme? What grief, what agony, what anger. There is no more sensible response than for Jesus to go in there and wreck shop. Listen, it doesn't matter what rituals are going on on the surface. It doesn't matter what religious boxes you are checking off, what spiritual practices make you think that you're better off with God than others. It is not the sacrifice that God desires. If it's not the sacrifice that God desires, it is nothing. And in the present age, the sacrifice that God desires is the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. He wants total faith in Him. He wants total abiding in Him. That Jesus is your only source of life. That's the sacrifice by which we enter into the presence of God. And any man-made external performance that you could come up with to make you look more spiritual will only produce false fruit that infuriates the Lord. It infuriates the Lord. You see, the worship that pleases God is not merely filing into your seat on a Sunday morning, making your mouth sing some songs, saying some friendly hellos to people, and then leaving unchanged. The worship that pleases God is not opening your Bible every morning, reading a chapter just to check it off the list, and then walking away unaffected. The worship that pleases God is not writing a check out to the church, to do your religious duty and make yourself look better to the church so that you own a part. The worship that pleases God is not dressing everything up on the outside so that people think you have it all together while your heart remains rotting away underneath. The worship that pleases God is instead that we would draw near to Him in faith through the sacrifice that he has provided his son, Jesus Christ. The worship that pleases God is when we rend our hearts and we cry out to him in a broken and contrite spirit and express our desperate need for him and our total dependence and total devotion to him and him alone. And we see this clearly as Jesus verbalizes his anger. See, he doesn't just act in anger. He verbalizes it. He tells them exactly what he's angry about. He was teaching them. I love that. Where, where is he teaching them in the middle of, like, throwing tables over? Like, that's a different kind of teaching. <laughs> he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting Isaiah and he's saying, y'all missed the point. Christ's issue is, is not only with the, the predatory practices of the money changers and the animal vendors. His problem was specifically that they had missed the point of temple worship. The temple was the place where his people could draw near to God. And not only them, the temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations. Now, do you think God ever looks at local churches and says, I want my house to be a house of prayer for all nations? 
look what they've turned it into. A show. A social club. A way to get some warm fuzzies out of their worship experience. British evangelist Leonard Ravenhill once said, the pastor who is not praying is playing, and the people who are not praying are straying. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, few prayers. Many singers, few clingers. Lots of pastors, few wrestlers. Many fears, but few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, few intercessors. Many writers, but few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. That was the state of the temple. And sadly, that could be the state of many churches today. And I don't want us to think about other churches that that may have happened to. I want us to ask this question. What will you do to make sure that's not this church? What will you do to make sure that's not this church? Prayer, communion with God, coming to God. That's what he is seeking And Jesus was angry because the nations, the Gentiles, were supposed to be able to come to God at the temple and they were the ones specifically being excluded. False worship practices put in place by the religious elite actually prevented what God wanted to happen in His house. I want you to understand this. Ritual, and rather ritualism, ritualism kills mission. Ritualism kills mission. Mission. Every time. The church, the, the, which is the dwelling place for God in the current age, see Ephesians 2. The church often suffers from the exact same problem as the temple in the Old Testament. We take true worship that motivates true mission and then we turn it into a series of rituals and traditions and checkboxes and whenever that begins to happen in a church whenever you settle for just going through the motions of church whenever you settle for a checkbox version of the christian life that you and others need to perform in order to be in good standing with god really you only serve to isolate yourself from others and from the lord and you isolate them from the lord And false fruits begin to take the place of faithful fruit. And the people of God become far less than they were called to be. Ritualism kills mission. Ritualism makes you think that you are fulfilling God's desires for you when in reality you are totally missing it. And listen, I want you to understand, it is not the fact that people call you to a certain habit that makes it ritualism. Ritual ritual is not bad. Habits are not bad. Ritualism is bad. And that's what's going on in your heart, of whether you think it's a checkbox or not, and whether you're treating it that way or not. And so let's come together. Yes, let's pursue spiritual habits, but let's not pursue ritualism. And so Christ shuts down the system of temple worship. He declares its final curse and he's instead he he raises a new temple in its place see this event in mark is actually the second time that jesus cleansed the temple you know that he did it early in his ministry and later in his ministry and and the first is recorded in john 2 and and there jesus foretold uh, destroy the temple and in three days i will raise it up and when he said that he was referring to his own body You see, Jesus is the new and better temple. Jesus is the new and better high priest who helps the people come to God, who mediates that relationship between God and man. And Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. See, Jesus came to reconcile people to God, people who in our own sin are satisfied with superficial false fruit instead of faithful fruit and the worship of God. His body was broken, and His blood was shed 
so that we could forever enter into the most holy place of God, so that the Gentiles, us, the nations, would, have, would not have to stand out in our own court. But we could fully enter in. We could draw near to God Himself at the throne of grace. And Jesus died so that we would not have to pay the exorbitant, unattainable price that our sin deserved. Jesus paid it for us. And his body, the temple, was destroyed. And in three days, he raised it up. And through his blood, we have a new covenant. We have a whole new way of relating to God. That's what we're going to talk about at the the communion table. That's what we're going to observe at the communion table. Everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, who who turns from their sin and, and from their false worship and their false fruits, Everyone who, who trusts Jesus alone for their salvation can now approach God and come to Him in faith. We come to God, we have communion with God. We can pray to God in the name of Jesus. That's why we, it's a habit to end your prayers in Jesus' name. Don't let it just be a habit. Don't let it just be a checkbox. Remember that there is no other way that you just prayed that prayer to God except in Jesus' name. That's really the last piece of bread that Mark puts on the top of this sandwich. He carries this theme of prayer right through, and he says, and and we see this that Christ is mighty. He is mighty to produce faithful fruit as the nations come to God through him. We are the nations. He is mighty to produce faithful fruit as we come to God through him. Notice again the theme of prayer that's like the, the toothpick holding this all together. Verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, they, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and, and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. As they walk by the next morning, and they see a a withered fig tree, the withered fig tree, which Matthew actually tells us withered up in in a moment, in an instant, but it's now been withered for a whole day. Uh, Peter points out, look at that withered fig tree. I mean, that's just incredible what you did there. The trees don't decompose in a moment unless you're with Jesus. But, but don't forget what the tree represented. The tree represented the whole system of temper, temple worship that was not producing fruit. And just like the tree decomposed in a moment, at the resurrection of the temple of the body of Jesus Christ, the old system of temple worship was rendered useless in a moment. A new way of drawing near to God would be established. And fervent prayer is how we express our faith in Christ. Fervent prayer is is how the Lord produces fruit in us. Now, I have to, I have to say, so often these verses are attributed to some word of faith, uh, name it, claim it kind of theology. J- just speak it out, and, and whatever you desire will come true. So, so you got a bad back, just, just say the word, and your back will be healed. you got a, a empty fin- a, a bank account, just say the word, and your account will be filled. And if it doesn't happen then you must not have enough faith. But doesn't that fly in the face of the whole context of what's going on here? Like Jesus is angry in this section specifically because his people had turned their religion into a way to fulfill their own desires. He is angry because they use God to get their idols. And that's, Exactly what prosperity theology does. But I think that most of us here know that, right? And so I don't, I don't really want to be preaching to the choir. Uh, our problem is not maybe so much that we're going to go off into prosperity theology, although if you are, run away. 
Our problem here is more likely that, that we are afraid of word of faith theology, and therefore we just kind of choose to ignore sections of Scripture like this because we can't think of what else they could possibly mean. We, we just kind of hand them over to the prosperity theology teachers and say, here, you can have them. I'm just going to stay as far away from that as I possibly can. Well, let's not do that today or any day. Let's lean into the promise in its context to see what it really means. Because we've already established that what Jesus is looking for is spiritual fruit, specifically the fruit that results from coming to God in prayer. And we've established that the Lord is angry at any attempt to produce false fruit through faithless piety. And so what does Jesus want us to understand in this call to faith that can move mountains? Here it is. He wants us to believe to have genuine faith in God so that he can mightily produce the faithful fruit that he desires. He wants our hearts so wrapped up in him that our words become his words. Our desires are his desires. Not the other way around. Right? Like, he doesn't adopt our desires, we adopt his desires, and then... When we speak, it's going to happen because it's the Lord's desire. He wants us to have faith that He can do everything in us and through us that He wants to. And the one who lives inside of us is the mighty one who can say to the fig tree, be cursed, and it withers up and dies in a moment. And God can and will accomplish His will as his people participate in his plan through faith, particularly by coming to him in prayer. Nothing, nothing, not even the big old mountain can stand in his way. Of course, that's figurative language. It's a figure of speech. But as a figure of speech, we can clearly get the point, right? That, that means that if God wants to make his people a house of prayer for all nations, which he most certainly does, that he is mighty to produce that fruit in his church even when Israel failed. God can reach the nations through his church, through us. Don't think that that's too big a vision. And God wants to move the mountainous obstacles in our own hearts that say, you know what, I'm going to come to God on my own terms. I'm going to come to God asking for what I want instead of what he wants. That's the mountain that needs to be moved. The mountain that says, I don't care about the nations coming to God. I just want a religious experience that benefits me. The mountain that says, me and God is enough. The mountain that says, where's the me time? Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to look after me? The Lord. God will move those mountains as we come to Him in faith. He will move the mountains that say, you know what, that person is so far gone. There's no way that the Lord could ever reach them. He'll move the mountains of prejudice that say, you know what, I just don't feel like going over there talking to that person. They're just so unlike me. Really, Jesus calls us to come to God to pray with faith that has two characteristics. Uh, faith that is uncompromised and then faith that is united. First, faith that is uncompromising. He says, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes. What would cause us to doubt? It would be a lack of belief that God can or desires to do what we are asking him to do. And if we don't know what God wants in a given circumstance, it's okay to say that. Say that, please. Don't try to name it and claim it and then like it's not his desire. <laughs> and if we doubt, it's okay to admit that to God too. But in our doubt, we must be pursuing God 
until he makes his will in whatever we are praying about crystal clear. God wants to make himself clear to us. And then we're able to pray, pray boldly and believe that God will do it. See, Jesus is calling here for big, God-sized prayers that seek and understand the heart of God. He's instructing us to, to seek the Lord, to, to do the things that only He can do. He wants us to have an uncompromising faith. Not, not faith in itself, not, not faith in faith, not faith in ourselves, but faith in the mighty God who saves us. And then He calls us to have a faith that is united. Prayers that are unhindered because we have a heart of unforgiveness toward others. I'm sorry, our prayers will be unhindered because we have a heart of forgiveness toward others. Jesus is, is clear again and again in the scriptures. If you, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. The measure by which you judge, you too will be judged. And that's not to make forgiveness a type of work that earns our salvation. It's to say that if you don't forgive, you don't really understand the gospel. You don't understand how much Christ has, has done to save you. you. You aren't trusting that it is by no merit of your own that you are able to draw near for, to God. And therefore, you are putting a burden on somebody else and holding a debt over their heads that, that you've already been forgiven of. And so why in the world would you not forgive them? Forgiven people forgive. And when we are united in prayer, we get to experience the mighty hand of God producing faithful fruit in His people together. We get to see Him do a work in us and through us as we reach the nations and call them close to God. And so, what fruit do you believe Christ is hungry to see in you today? What fruit do you believe Christ is hungry to see in you today? Is there any way that you've been trying to produce that fruit on your own through some empty ritual, and thereby producing false fruit instead of faithful fruit? Come to Jesus through faith. Come to Jesus through faith. Commune with Him because He is the mighty one who can produce faithful fruit in you. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.